Uh, good morning, guys. Happy uh, New Year to you. New decade, I guess. Uh, pretty amazing. The years just fly by. Um, I probably said it before, but it feels like however many kids you have, uh, it's kind of like you can multiply that by how kind of how fast the time feels like it's going. So you got three kids. It's like all of a sudden it's 2020. <laughs> and last last week it felt like, you know, 2015 to me. Uh, so it's it's wild. That's uh, fun. Hopefully you guys are ready for a new year. Uh, and we are going to do at the beginning of this uh, new year what we've been doing every week uh, prior, which is get into God's word. Uh, we want God to guide us. We want God to speak to us. Uh, I don't think that I come with any wisdom in and of myself. I believe that uh, wisdom comes to us from God. And he's revealed his heart and his mind to us in his word. So this morning, if you have a Bible, um, you can open up to Luke chapter 18. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. As always, feel free to keep or give away uh, any, any Bibles that you get from us. It would be a, our, our pleasure to, to give that to you. But Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 34. This is going to be kind of part two of uh, what we looked at last week, if you were here. Um, But don't worry, I'll catch you up to speed. Let me read it, we'll pray, and then uh, we'll get going for the morning. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Let's let's pray. God, even in that last line of of our text. I think we recognize the need we have for what uh, theologians theologians have termed the gift of illumination. Naturally, God, we hear your word. (laughs) We read your word. We see what you have said and you've done. Yet we don't get it. We don't see the meaning. We don't find anything precious in it, anything true. It seems like a myth, a fairy tale, a little off base, a little old and outdated. We don't grasp what was said. But with the gift of illumination comes the gift of open eyes. Suddenly the same words that seemed dreary and drab, that seemed boring and dull, come alive with light in life. They're electric. Something happens inside of our hearts as we hear. 
Our eyes are opened. We can see. We see in your word truth. We see in your son. A treasure more valuable than this world has to offer. We see in the cross the very remedy for all of our ills. So God, right now, I know that there's a fork in the road. If you don't come by your spirit and illuminate your word, open our eyes, soften our hearts, help us grasp, open up our our minds to understand what you're saying, then, then we will just go the route of walking out of here cold and dead. But if you come, we will come alive. And so, God, I'm praying, Holy Spirit, come, pour out your spirit, God. Let us see what you are doing in this text. Let us hear what you're saying in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, random story just to, just to start. Um, I, a couple weeks ago, was reading something in, in, in the news, and uh, while it probably wasn't too funny for the woman involved, I, it, it, it is a little bit humorous for us, but um, you'll see where we're headed uh, in, in a moment. I just wanted to share it with you, because I thought it kind of serves as a decent go-between between what I shared last week. For those of you who are here, this will maybe catch you up a little bit, and then... Uh, where we're headed this morning, but I, I read of the, the it's the it's the title of the article that caught my attention. But it, it was about this woman who was a reporter um, for the news there in in Spain, and I guess every year around Christmas time um, there is this big lottery draw in Spain. I guess the biggest in the world, uh, boasting of about a two point four three billion dollar uh, lottery kind of. Ticket, I guess, or, or uh, if you if you win the full prize, um, and as this woman is is kind of reporting on this, she's in like a I don't know where she was a, a marketplace where they were selling the tickets and they're watching and waiting as the numbers are being drawn and all this. And, and the reporter actually herself has uh, winning numbers, and uh, right there on the air as she's realizing that she's got. These numbers, she just loses it. She goes crazy. She starts to celebrate. She starts screaming and dancing. There are other people as well who had some winning numbers in the crowd. They're all going crazy. Champagne has popped off. You know, there's stuff getting in her eyes. She runs up to the clerk who sold her the ticket. She kisses the 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 clerk. She's right there on on live television or whatever it is. And she wags her finger in front of the camera and says, uh, "I don't remember what her name was. Uh, it, it doesn't matter." She basically said, "I'm not going to work." Tomorrow, no work for me. I'm done. Right. Uh, and it, 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 people thought that she was actually quitting right there on the spot because she, she won the lottery. Her time had come. She's done with work. In fact, the title of the article was this was in the Washington Post reporter won lottery and seemed to quit job on the air. I was like, no way. How crazy is that? But. Soon after all the celebration uh, comes to an end, reality breaks in, just kind of puts an end to the party. Um, Because I guess there's a confusing, kind of complicated way that they do. Uh, They kind of divide up the numbers and the winnings and things. And depending on which ticket you buy and how much you pay, you get a certain portion of it all, right? So this woman likely thought she had uh, won something around $444,000, which around there would get you very far. Around here, maybe would pay your rent for a couple months, but... <laughs> there you might get pretty far. You could quit your job for a while. What she came to find out is that what she actually won, still good, 
was $5,500, a small little portion. Certainly still a good day, you might say, but not, not, not the best day, not the day she thought she was having. In fact, it may actually end up being a bad day uh, if you quit your job on the air and they don't want to give it back to you, which the last I saw, uh, it's uncertain whether she'll have her job at the end of all of this. Now, I share this with you um, because I think in our text this morning, this is the sort of embarrassment. This is the sort of tragedy, or if I could even amplify it out a bit, this is the sort of devastation that Jesus is trying to save us from. Let me explain what I mean. I, I think we all are on analogy, actually quite similar to this reporter. We all kind of, when we come into wealth, or we think even about the idea if our numbers were drawn, if the, the lottery falls in our favor, we like to think that if we had money, if we had the goods, if we had whatever we needed, if we could get whatever we wanted, man, we would be done. We'd be satisfied. We'd be fulfilled. We, 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 we would have a lasting kind of significance. We would, we would have arrived. We would no longer need to, to worry about God or pay Him any mind because we are fine on our own, thank you. We'd be celebrating. We'd be popping the champagne. We'd be dancing and high-fiving. And Jesus, in our text, is looking at a brother who's won the lottery, you could say. A rich young guy has all that he wanted. Very rich, we're told. And he's looking at him, and through him, he's looking at us, and he's saying, listen, I'm sorry to break up the party. But money and wealth and the stuff of this world ain't going to do what you think it's going to do. Yes, okay, I know you need it, and I know you need food, and I know you need some of this, but it's not going to get, it's not going to satisfy. It's going to ultimately leave you at the end of it like this woman going, dang, I thought I had all that I want, and you're just going to kind of fall through onto nothing and be left the worse even for it, for putting all your weight on it. Now, you may recall, um, again, that this is kind of the second part of what I began last week. If you missed it, no, no big deal. Um, but last week I concluded with something that I thought would be good to kind of connect uh, to the beginning of this message here as we try to dive in and, and take things a little further. And, and, and that is that I, I mentioned how uh, when we hear Jesus tell this young man, hey, listen, one thing you lack, sell everything and come follow me. When we hear Jesus tell them that, we might be prone to think, goodness gracious, this is, this is a little unnecessarily rigid, a little unnecessarily harsh, uh, uh, a little cruel even. Jesus, he, look, he clearly has a desire. He wants to, you know, like inherit eternal life. He, 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 why are you being so hard on him? And in our text, the little detail isn't given that in Mark and Matthew's account, or I think it may just be Mark's account, um, we're told something about the motivation. Why did Jesus say this to him? Was it just to be cruel? Was it just to be harsh? Of course, we know our Lord. We know that's not true. But Mark spells it out for us, and I think it's really important. This is Mark ten twenty one. As he's explaining and, and describing this story, he says, Jesus, after hearing this man say, I've kept all the laws, I've kept all the rules, I'm good. Looking at him, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said, one thing you lack, let's sell it. Let's sell that thing in your heart that's truly your God. Let's, let's get you from relying on that which will ultimately let you down in the end. Let's move you from this attachment you have to money towards me. You see, he's trying, he's calling this man almost like, like this reporter, like it's not going to do what you think. You get the end of the day, it's going to be a bad day. <laughs> it's not going to go well. It's going to be embarrassing. You have to apologize on, you know, on national television or whatever. It's not going to do what you think. But I'll be there for you. And I'll do more than you thought I would. So he's calling us 
away from these things to release these things and to move towards him, not because he wants to be unnecessarily harsh, rigid, cruel, but because he loves us. Because he wants us to be not on sand, building our lives on sand, but on the rock. The one thing that will not let us down, namely himself. In him, we will find security and treasure and provision and life that will not let us down like everything else inevitably will. So this text, then, I said last time, is more broadly about this idea of the attachments of the heart. Those things that we we attach our hearts to those those things that we set on the throne of our hearts, if you will, and kind of uh, 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 set up as, as, as gods, as idols. Those things that we hope in, trust in, uh, think will satisfy. This, this text is about those attachments that we make when we kind of run off. And, and, and the goal is to move us towards him. That's broadly speaking the goal. But, but really, one of the things that we also noted is more narrowly, this text is about the dangers of wealth. And that's going to come out more specifically in our text this morning. It's more, it's more specifically about how you and I are going to be prone, uh, not just to set up perhaps relationships or, or, you know, a career or other things, you know, attach our hearts to those. But in particular, we will be uh, prone to attach ourselves to wealth and money, hope in it, trust in it, try to find our identity in our satisfaction in it. And that's what's happening with this man on the surface. He seems to be keeping God's law well enough. But on the inside, it's it's money that has captivated him. And he doesn't want to let it go. Now, um, I said last time I'm going to organize our journey through these verses under four headings. Uh, The first was reframing the discussion. That was verses 18 to 21. The second was reaching the heart. Verses 22 and 23. Now we come to uh, the third and fourth heading, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Number three is this, respecting the problem. Verses 24 to 25. And then finally, realizing the solution. That's verses 26 to 34. So we're going look at those third and fourth uh, points here this morning now. So, respecting the problem. Number three, uh, signpost along this journey. Respecting the problem. Verses 24 to 25. Um, as we come to verse 24 and prepare ourselves to kind of drop in, one of the things we need to remember is that back up in verse 18, this, this whole thing started with a question to Jesus. This young man comes with a, quite a, a good question, really. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we get a sense as we watch Jesus engage with him that this man thought he was well on his way to inheriting it. Right. All these I've kept from my youth. He, he kind of was starting to get a little little cocky. I got this. This is going to be good. He was thinking he was on on the right path. And what we come to find out is Jesus touches that which is truly his God, namely his money. Uh, this man goes, whoa. If you're going to force that sort of decision on me, God or money, I think I'm going to have to go with money. And what we read is that he he becomes or this is now um Verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. When he heard, I gotta, I gotta give up this, he became very sad because he was very rich. And Matthew and Mark take it a step further. They tell us that this man didn't just kind of become sad, they make it plain. This man went away sad. The call was, leave it, come follow me. But the result was no. And he goes away sad. So Jesus now dropping into verse 24 uh, reacts to all of this. And here's what he says. Or let's read it. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't have time to flesh this out further, but if you've been with us at all in Luke's gospel, you realize that this is not a new thing Jesus is saying. In fact, it's one of the major themes that Luke brings out. The dangers of wealth, uh, the issues with the rich, 
right? And, and, and what money can do. And so here he's, he's bringing that out again, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. While it's perhaps a bit uh, uh, troubling, it should no longer be surprising to us because Jesus is kind of saying this everywhere. But one of the things that he goes on to say here, I think kind of puts this biblical um, principle in maybe its most pointed uh, expression. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 25. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, perhaps you're familiar with this. Um, he says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, to make some sense of this for you, the camel would have been the largest land animal there in Palestine. And obviously the eye of the needle, that little thing that you can barely get a thread through it, right? You're like sitting there like, trying to like, have you ever, I mean, I'm no, you know, obviously I'm, I'm no homemaker. All right. But, you know, I would think I could do it. Even that's hard. Now he's going, listen, it would be easier to get a camel through that little, that little hole than to get a rich man into the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, it's not. Uh, it's not hard to kind of get what Jesus is, is getting at here. He, he's saying not only is it difficult for the rich, wealthy to get into the kingdom, it's impossible. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to you're not going to get them through. They're not going to get in now because of the sheer shock of this statement. Uh, the, because of the way that it kind of shakes up our earthly, worldly sensibilities, uh, a lot of interpreters over the years have tried to figure out, no, surely it doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. What do you mean? We're not all supposed to kind of forsake wealth. And, and what, what exactly is he saying? That there's no rich people in heaven. You can't even get saved if you got money. It's over for you. You're condemned. Is that what he said? Well, so here's what they've tried to do. There are some, and, and, and none of them have worked. So, some have tried, though, without any evidence to say, okay, well, the eye of the needle must be a small gate somewhere in, you know, in Israel or in Jerusalem. And, and, and so, yes, okay, a camel would have a difficult time. He may have to hunker up and shrunk, you know, whatever. But he can get through with a little difficulty. Or others have, have said, uh, okay, maybe it was actually a mistranslation of the Greek uh, something kind of that's gone wrong in perhaps the, the ways the manuscripts were handed down. Cause, uh, with just a change of a letter or so, you can get, uh, camel down to cable. Okay. You, okay. So we're no longer trying to get a camel through the eye of the needle. Maybe it's just cable. So yes, it would be hard. A cable's thick, but it can be done. Right. But anyway, you slice it. The bottom line is we, we miss Jesus's point. He's not trying to say it's a little bit. It's even quite difficult for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying it's impossible. And if you want to push back on me, if you if you if you don't believe me, he goes on to say as much in the next verse. So look with me at verse 27, where he says uh, essentially this. He says such a thing because the disciples hear and go, are you kidding me? This is crazy. Who can be saved? And he goes, such a thing is impossible. With man. So the point isn't, oh, with a little difficulty, you can do it. The point is, such a thing with man is impossible. You're not going to, no matter how the camel cinches its belt and tries to, you know, we're, you know, cut off the, lose those pounds because it's 2020 and he's got a New Year's resolution. He's not going to get small enough to get through the eye of a needle. Not going to happen. Impossible. In the same way, it's impossible. For a rich man, full of the earth's goods and all that it has to offer, to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, we need to let that statement rest on us a bit, I think, before trying to shrug it off. Um, Such a thing, if anywhere, the statement would be important, uh, especially here, right? Silicon Valley, where... You know, you see the reports, you know, the 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 statistics Uh USA Today, you know, recently a little while back, was trying to figure out the wealthiest, you know, metro area in America. And do you want to know 
where that area is? Well, I'll tell you, you're sitting in it right now. This is it. I know you're like, I don't feel very wealthy. I, I get it. Neither do I. But, <laughs> but this is it. We live in a city crowded with camels. Full of the world's wealth and riches. Maybe you have it. Maybe you don't. But so many are just pursuing it. Attaching their hearts to it. And therefore, so many in this city will find it difficult, even impossible, to enter the kingdom of God. And now, here's the question we're all perhaps wondering, and that is, why? Why is it so hard? Why is it impossible? Why is entering the kingdom of God so difficult for those who have stuff? What is the meaning of all of this? Well, if I were to come straight away at the answer, I, I think the issue is that money and wealth reassures our sense of self-assurance. It numbs us to our own utter dependency and need. It flatters us as if we are adults, significant, pr- profound, pronounced, you know, and, 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 and deceives us because truly we are little needy kids. In other words, if you remember what Jesus said is required, To enter the kingdom of heaven, back up in verse 17 of Luke 18, money keeps us from that. Luke 18, 17, he says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it like a child. The only way you're getting into the kingdom of heaven is if you receive it like a needy little child. And the money, those that have the wealth, the the self-made man, the people with the bank accounts and all the stuff they could want, that money is going to numb them. It's going to distract them. It's going to keep them from the one realization they really need, which is, I don't have what I need. I can't do this. It wasn't me who made this happen. I'm not going to be able to buy my out, my, my way out of my deepest problem. I need Jesus. I'm a beggar. I'm low. Mercy or, or nothing for me. I'm a little child. I think if we work with that same illustration that Jesus gives us with the the camel and the eye of the needle and things, I I, I think really there is hinted the, the answer to this question. Why is it so hard? Because technically, if you just look at the image, what is it that keeps the camel from being able to go through the eye of the needle? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Here, here's what it is. The camel is too big, right? The camel's too big. And if I were to draw the analogy towards what Jesus is saying about the wealthy and the kingdom of heaven, it's the same issue. Why will the wealthy not get into the kingdom? Why won't they want to come? Why won't they go? They're too big in their own estimation of themselves and their own evaluation of who they are. Too big. I ain't going to get down on my knees before the cross. You know who I am? Do you know what, you know, how many zeros behind my, you know, bank account or whatever? I got a lot of zeros in my bank account, but that's another story. You know, it's like, <laughs> you're getting it though, right? I'm, I'm too big. I'm not going to lower myself to that. And so the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God remains an impossibility for them. Now, that I've probably scared you a little bit, let's move towards the solution. Verses 26 to 34, realizing the solution. We see now that this is quite a problem and 
now we come and we, we wonder what is the solution um, for this? We're, we're looking at verses 26 to 34. I'm going to make five observations with regard to this solution as Jesus presents it here. Five observations and then we'll be done. Just five. Um, observation number one. It reverses common assumptions. The solution now, what we're going to find is it reverses common assumptions. Um, when we come to verse 26 and we see how these disciples react, look at it there. They, those who heard it, those who heard Jesus say, it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It, it, it's like a camel going through the eye of the needle. These disciples, these people hearing this go, well, then who can be saved? Who can who can make it? Who can be saved? Now, nearly every commentator uh, brings out something about their response that I think is is quite interesting. Um, in fact, in, in Matthew and Mark, I should say as well, their account makes it uh, plain even further. Kind of talking about the emotional state of these men that they were greatly astonished that Jesus would say that, and then they say, "Well, who who can be saved?" And what the commentators discuss at this point uh, and, and, and directed me towards is, is the, the common sentiment in uh, Israel in that day and, and why this was just grating on their understanding, why this was a reversal of common assumptions, what Jesus was saying. So they're hearing this in a culture and in a time where for them, what they understood is the rich and the wealthy and those who had material prosperity were not far from the kingdom of heaven. They were actually near it. They were smack dab in the middle of it. The, the, the wealth, the, the material prosperity was a sign of God's blessing upon them, of his favor. This was a culture where, hey, listen, the fear of the Lord brings prosperity. And therefore, those who fear the Lord, those who are the most holy, it follows, will also be, should be, the most prosperous. It's not that the wealthy are the furthest from the kingdom, but they are the closest to it. And so here's where the reversal comes. Here's where the astonishment comes. Here's why the disciples hear this and they go, if not the rich, then who? If not the wealthy, then who? Now, we are still prone, I think, to this same error, uh, this same mistake. I know I am. When life is going well, physically, materially, whatever, circumstantially, in this earth, I go, God loves me. Favor upon me. Yes and amen. Thank you, hallelujah, spirit fingers, you're doing a good work. But when life is going bad, when circumstances are crumbling, when things are hard, what is it that we feel in the dark night of the soul? Is it not, my God, where are you? You hate me. Are you against me? What are you doing? See, we're prone to the same sort of thing, but we have to know that the economy of God, the economy of the kingdom of heaven is not this simplistic. If I could flesh it out a little further for you, sometimes one of the most loving things God can do is break you and let things in your life fall apart so that you fall in love with him in new and deeper ways. So that you kind of, as the ground is crumbling, as the sand is, is, is giving way, you fall on the rock, so to speak. Sometimes one of the most loving things God can do is, is break you down and let things go bad for a while. That's one of the reasons why Jesus will say the poor actually have the upper hand on the rich. It's because the rich think they're awesome. And they're two steps removed from the kingdom. The poor know they're not awesome and they know they're needy. They're just one step away. There's, there's mercy in that. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Right? There's mercy in, in not having the world, but getting your soul and eternal life. See? Sometimes one of the most loving things God can do is break you and let it all fall apart. Sometimes, also on the other hand, one of the most wrathful things God can do. One of the most 
you know, one of the, one of the ways he can, he can actually kind of judge us is actually to hand us over to the things we so desire. Material prosperity. It looks like blessing on the outside, but like Romans 1, you read it. His wrath looks like giving you over to the thing you want because you would not bend in need of Him. Okay, have it. And your heart numbs and it hardens and you get deeper into the devil's web. So sometimes... Sometimes God's favor looks like his frown. And sometimes God's frown looks like his favor. Sometimes, oftentimes, even the kingdom of God and the gospel reverses, confuses, even scandalizes our common assumptions. And that's what we start to see here. So so just to make this personal. There may be some of us in this room who think we're smack dab in the center of God's kingdom. And he is trying to alert us to the fact that we're not. you may see life going so well and think, hey, God is with me. Look, look at how things are going. I got perfect health. I got all this wealth. I've got and he's trying to alert you that that's not the that's not the barometer. That's not the gauge. Wake up. Am I on, am I on the throne in your heart? That's what he's trying to get at with this young man. You're not good. It's not going well. I'm not your God. Your money is. But then there may be others of us on the other side who go, man, I'm so far from the kingdom. Look at how hard my life is. He's saying, listen, hang on, child. Hang on. I'm at work. And let me just tell you, I am well pleased with you. Feel far from the kingdom. You're right in the middle of it. You're right. So it reverses common assumptions. It surprises, it scandalizes, it astonishes these disciples to hear the rich are far. And by, uh, by uh, uh, logic, we understand then that the poor are, are getting close. Observation number two. Now, it requires a miracle of sovereign grace. It requires a miracle of sovereign grace. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to respond to his disciples' astonishment. And we read this. He said, what is impossible with man? There it was. We looked at that. What is impossible with man? Here comes the good news. Is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. It's not possible for you and I in our Nature, fallen and twisted as it is, to, to break with the allure of money and wealth and material prosperity. We will be pursuing it. We will be hungry for it. We will be looking. It's not possible for us to break that attachment. That, that's been the point here. But God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Sovereign grace can snap the attachment and and rework our hearts so that they long for, they desire, they attach to the right object. And money just becomes money. Not my God. My everything. With this verse, I think we're here brought to face again the important doctrine of the new birth, actually, the idea of regeneration, the idea that you and I, as this, this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he, he says, listen, let me fill you in. Unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. Or he goes on, unless a man is born of the spirit, the spirit falls The spirit moves and causes a man to be born again. Unless a person is born again from above by the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to happen. What is impossible, though, for man is possible for God when he comes and does what we could never do. 
And it's interesting to note with this idea of new birth and regeneration, I think it's, I think it's worth noting that when, when Jesus talks about there in verse 27, this idea of what is impossible with man is possible with God, it's the same sort of language we see elsewhere in the scriptures. Uh, that is used by God to talk about how he's going to bring new birth, new life from barren wombs. From dead places, life is going to spring up. So we just celebrated Christmas, and a part of the Christmas story is what God does with Elizabeth, right? Uh, Mary's cousin, or uh, I think that's right, I forget, I think so. Uh, and, and you recall, perhaps, what the angel says to Mary when he's talking to her about the fact that Elizabeth, who once was barren, is now with child, says this, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Verse 37 of Luke 1, For nothing will be impossible. With God. He was, she, her womb was dead. Well, I said, let there be life, and there's life. Nothing will be impossible for God. She couldn't do it. No one else could do it. Doctors couldn't do it. Modern medicine, science can't do it. I did it. And that text itself is actually a direct quotation of the, the Greek uh, Old Testament, um, in the Greek Old Testament, Genesis 18.14. Genesis 18.14, and there is the story of Abraham and Sarah. Another barren womb, right? Another old woman who is without child. And God says this in uh, verses 13 and 14 of Genesis 18. Why did Sarah laugh? He's talking to Abraham here. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And here it is. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. Put a period at the end of the statement because it came from the mouth of God. No question mark there. I said it. It will be. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is impossible for God. What was impossible for man is possible for him. These are the things I think Jesus is invoking when he uses this language for his disciples here as he's talking about what it's like for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven and what's required. It's impossible. It's just as impossible as life coming forth from death. And yet, that's what I'm going to do. When I cause people to be born again, my sovereign grace and their scales fall from their eyes and they see God as their treasure, not this stuff. I love the, um, the image that we get when we consider the, the Greek word behind um, what Jesus says in verse 27. When he, 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 the, the word translated possible, will be possible for God, is the Greek word um, dunamis. Which you could probably gather a word in English that we get from that. Come on now. That's right. Good. No, you shout it out. That's fine. Di- dynamite. Dynamite. And I, I love the image be, because it's as if God in sovereign grace is saying, listen, I'm going to slip dynamite into the hearts of fallen men. And when I do that, I will thereby break, snap the attachments that they have made with wealth and money and stuff. I will blow up the internal workings of their heart and reorder it aright. That's what he's doing. That's what's happening with this solution. He's dropping dynamite in our hearts and reworking us from the inside out so that suddenly we find ourselves less in love with our stuff, more in love with God, able to open our hands and release for the advancement of his kingdom. Wherever he wants. If he wants me to save and use my stuff for this, well then that's what I do. If he wants me to give it all to the board, well then that's what I do. It's, it no longer has a hold on me. 
Because I'm no longer white-knuckling it. I got Him. He's got my back. Seek first His kingdom. What I need will be added. I walk in that, and I can release these other things as the commander-in-chief says, release. He's my God, not my stuff. We're able to fulfill, in other words, what Paul points us to in 1 Timothy 6.17. Now, this is a very important text because it says, you know, some of you are like, well, then I can't, if I, what if I have money? Does that mean I'm, ulti- I'm destined for hell now? Is that what's going on? Is that what Nick is saying? Is that what Jesus is saying? Not necessarily. It's worth considering what has your heart. Jesus is going after that which had this, this young ruler's heart, which was his money. It's worth us asking what has our hearts. But l- listen to this. As for the rich, Paul says, in this present age, they're all going to hell. No, he doesn't say that. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Remember what I said? Too big. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's going to fall through. You thought you had 444,000. You got 4,000. Good luck. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you hear that? The, 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 the attachment has been snapped. And so you may have money. You might not. If you do have money, it's not a ticket to hell, a sure ticket to hell. It just means, listen, charge the rich not to set their hopes on it, not to get haughty and think they're any better, or they got God's blessing. You know, and it was Don't do that. Don't go that route. Set your hope on God who richly provides you with everything that you need. The one who truly satisfies. You see, God gets in and he breaks up your heart. And if you have money, you start using it for different things. It's a tool for the kingdom. Advancing his kingdom, not your own. Observation number three. It loosens our grip on earthly things. This just follows, obviously I'm already alluding to it. It follows from what I've been saying. Uh, loosens our grip on earthly things. The solution will cause us to release. Uh, Peter, I think, catches on to the fact that God in his grace has done the impossible with him. And that's why he responds in verse 28 saying, see, we've, we've left our homes and followed you. You remember some of the stories. Jesus goes, hey, follow me. And these dudes just drop their nets. They just drop their stuff. They just immediately follow. It's like, it's, it's almost as if God has just dropped dynamite into their hearts and they go, okay, yes. We left home. We followed you. Grace was at work. You've done the impossible in me. Let me say a word about what Jesus means when he mentions there in verse 29. I think this could be misunderstood, obviously. Uh, when he, he talks about how we're not just leaving our house or stuff. He, he mentions you know, leaving wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. You go, you go well, thing I always wanted to find some sort of loophole and and get out of having to parent my kids and lay down my life for them. I guess now God's calling me to it. You know, time to go have dinner with the boys, you know, beer with the boys. No, is he calling us to here to, to cut fam familial ties and, 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 uh, abort on our responsibilities. No. And I had a lot more to talk about with this, but I'll at least just say this. He, he's, he's, talking about the deepest attachments of our heart here. He's talking about the fundamental loyalties that we have. He's he's drawing attention to the reality that he has to be it for us. He has to be bottom. There can be nothing beneath, nothing above him. In other words, he's simply drawing out again what he said, like in Luke 14, 27, that whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Everything in life subordinated to the Son, to God. And you say again, well, that sounds harsh, but now think with me. I could illustrate this because you get it. And he talks about how, man, there's going to come a time where brother's going to turn against brother. Kids are going to turn against parents because on, uh, on behalf because of the, the Son of Man. And we could imagine a scenario, and maybe some of you have lived it, where you've got a spouse. And that spouse, you know, maybe you came to the Lord, and your spouse is not into it. 
Your spouse is a little bit upset. They'll deal with it for a while. Okay, this is just a phase. All right. This is just church thing is just a phase. You're excited for a little while. I'll kind of put up with it. And then they realize, wow, it's actually still going on. Well, it's getting stronger. It's getting deeper. Okay, listen, honey. It's time we have a talk. Because you keep going on about this Jesus guy. You're giving our money to the church. <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're inviting these weird, you know, backwoods Christian people into my home. Yeah, I don't. You're, you're telling my kids about these fairy tales at night. I don't like this. We got to talk about this, honey. I want you to make a choice. Is it going to be me, your husband, who you can see, feel, touch? Or is it going to be this Jesus guy who you imagine is nearby and has worked all of this time and energy? So you're going to be forced to make a decision sometimes. And true love and, and, and Jesus wanting to call you. To, don't Listen, he's saying that, again, what good is it if you gain this world and you have a great marriage? Or something even for a few years. But then you forsake Christ to get it. And you lose your soul. You say no. First Corinthians 7 talks about it. There are going to be times. Where people come to the Lord. And their spouse says peace. I'm out of here. They abandon because of that. So when you're forced to make the choice. If you're forced to make the choice. Has that decision already been made in your heart? Man the Lord is it for me. Where he goes, whatever I lose in the process, I, I gain because of him. I'm not saying it's easy, and neither is Jesus. He's saying it's worth it in the end. And that we do need to settle that now. That he is our God. Not our kids, not our stuff, not our spouse. Him. Observation number four. It brings greater blessing than and now. Then and now the solution not only brings blessing to us in the age to come, it brings greater blessing to us right now. That is important. Let me show you where this shows up. Verse 29 and 30. He said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this life in this time and in the age to come. Eternal life. I want you to let your mind settle for a moment on that phrase in this time. Who will not receive many times more in this time. I want you to hear that. I want you to let that settle in. Because I think one of the common uh, feelings we can have, one of the common approaches we can have to the Christian life is it's kind of like we slog through. On this side of heaven, the Christian's call is to just kind of slog through in misery as we say no to so many awesome things that the world has to offer on our way to hopefully, when we die, seeing God and actually having satisfaction and life and fullness. That our job here is just, you know, everything is in like gray scale <laughs> or, uh, you know, gray tones. We don't, have, we don't even have color televisions. It's just black and white. But when we get to heaven, we get color, we get HD. It's going to be good. So hold on. I know it's horrible. We can feel that way sometimes. And yet this phrase here in this time pushes back on that a bit. Pushes back on that. So I, I think you may be mistaken. Is it true that we are longing for the age to come? That that ought to guide and drive us? Yes. But is it true that nothing of that age to come, nothing of the inheritance, nothing of the fullness and joy of God streams back into the present here and now? No. Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. And that abundant life does not just begin when we die and rise. Although that is the crowning moment. It begins right now. In this time. Philippians 1.21 Paul does not say to live is loss. But to die is gain. To live is misery and, and, and tragedy and horrible. But to die is gain. That's not what he says. He says to live is Christ. 
and to die is gain. And that is a massive difference. He's not saying to live is just emptiness and loneliness and and, and sadness. He's saying to live is to know Christ. (laughs) Fellowship with Him. Fullness in Him. Now. But to die is still even better. (laughs) You, You with me? Oh, sure. We can lose our house. For the sake of the kingdom of God. But in Christ, we come to find refuge and a dwelling place and a place where we are welcome. We come to find home. All who are weary and heavy laden, listen, come and find your rest in me. He becomes our home. He becomes our dwelling place now. Oh, sure, we may lose our spouse for the sake of the kingdom of God. They may abandon, they may leave, whatever it may be. We may go on the mission field and they get martyred. And you're left alone. But I am telling you, you are not just losing, you are gaining in Christ, heavenly bridegroom. And he cares and he nourishes and he cherishes you now. Oh, sure, you may lose your parents for the sake of the kingdom of God. But in Christ, we receive a heavenly father and his provision and his protection and his commitment starts not the day you show up, you know, in heaven. But now I had a friend who when he was coming to the Lord, his parents said, you go get baptized We don't know you anymore. You may lose parents. You can't a father. Who won't ever let you, won't ever turn on you in that way. Oh, sure, we may lose brothers or sisters or children for the sake of God's kingdom. But in Christ, we enter into a spiritual family. We're not just called brother and sister because that's kind of the hip thing to do in the scriptures. We're called brother and sister because in Christ, we are a family. So when he says many times more in this time, you go, what in the world does that mean? I'm going to have many brothers and sisters and all this. Yes. Right here. The church. It's amazing. So the Christian life, make no mistake, it's not loss and then gain. It is gain upon gain, however much we lose in this life. Fifth and finally, observation number five. It is all the solution. It is all owing to the cross of our Lord. In verses 31 to 34, uh, Jesus foretells for yet another time that he is headed to the cross. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles He's, he's going to be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged and killed. And then on the third day, rise. Now, I decided to to keep this with the text within the scope of what we were looking at this morning, because I think, as you probably gather now, I always think that whatever benefits come to us. And in this case, whatever solution there is to our deep problems, it, it, it has its ultimate source in the cross of Christ. It ultimately owes itself to the gospel. And so how is it that you and I, that that Jesus is reversing things and he's coming in sovereign grace and blowing stuff up like dynamite and rearranging us and letting us release our stuff in love for him and in love for neighbor and and giving us even more than we deserve and even more than we let go, we gain. How in the world is all of that happening? Well, it's right here. Bottom line is, is it's because of the cross of Christ. It's because of what he has done in our place, his death, his resurrection. If I were to borrow that image of dynamite again, I I could say this. uh, It's as if God knows that if he's going to break this attachment and, 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 and if he's going to set us free from the love of this, this stuff that ultimately destroys us and reattach us to himself who will give us life and life abundantly and life eternally. He knows he's going to have to get into the, 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 the fallen, twisted, dark, messed up nature of man and work there. 
and set dynamite there. And here's the thing that I need you to understand. It's not literally just a piece of dynamite, right? The dynamite is Jesus. The dynamite is his son. The one who he, That's the rescue mission. The rescue mission is him taking on flesh, taking on our nature, going down into the depths of it. Though he was good, treated as though he were wicked, though he was the only one who truly lived the way we're talking about here, releasing his stuff and love for God and neighbor and for the advancement of the kingdom. He's treated like the idolater. And though he is truly the author of life and life abundant, he was put over to death. He goes to the depths of it. He experiences the fullness of it. He's lowered in the grave. And then somewhere in the belly of the earth, somewhere in the depths of the muck of human nature, on the third day at dawn, dynamite explodes. And the sun rises. Salvation. Eternal inheritance. In his hands. To distribute freely to his people. He is the dynamite. It's his life, death, and resurrection power that snaps the stuff that's gone wrong. The attachments that's gone wrong in us. And reconnects us to the Son. So here this morning, if you are finding Christ, God, more precious than stuff. I can tell you, you owe that to, yes, God's sovereign grace, but at bottom, the cross of Christ. He is the dynamite. He's coming in and he's doing work. He's blowing stuff up and making it right. So let's sing. Let's lift our voices to the one who's saved, done the impossible, done the miracle in us. Let me pray. God, we owe everything to the cross. Forgive us for the ways we think we add stuff (laughs) to this. Forgive us for the ways we think we are self-sufficient still. We think we've got what it takes. God, we know that what we need more than anything is for you to come in and do work. For you to open eyes, for you to explode hearts, for you to put things back together. We can't do it. What was impossible for us is possible for you. And in sovereign grace, you've done it for us in Jesus. Thank you. So we sing. We pray that our praises please you, God. In Jesus name. Amen.